Hello and welcome to the Centric Cities podcast from The Centric Lab. Some of this material will be familiar with listeners to the Conscious Cities podcast, where it was previously hosted. However, we decided to bring things in-house to further our intended direction with it. Centric are all about enhancing user experience in the built environment. And integral to this is mapping out ecosystems and looking for the friction and tension points that exist within. Well, that's what exactly this podcast aims to explore by interviewing professionals working at the coalface of the businesses helping design, build, manage, and dream of the cities of tomorrow. My name is Josh, and I'll be your host. Episode 9 of the podcast was recorded in February 2018. In this episode, I welcome Nick Russell to the show to talk about his experiences at the intersection of technology and real estate and what he's up to now with his latest venture, PropCoin. So Nick and I go back around five years when we were, in theory, competition to each other. He was the co-founder of one tech startup and I an early team member at mine. Now, I must point out for clarity that in the show, Nick does refer to me as a founder of uh, where I was before, a company called Appear Here. But technically, I'm not. So I think it's important to state that I was employee number one after the sole founder, Ross, and I'll very happily take that title home with me. But in recent years, Nick and I have got back in touch, and it's been a pleasure to sit and talk with him as Nick looks far and wide and beyond his own business to dig deep into what's going on laterally around his or anyone else's for that. And he looks at the business ideas and the opportunities that exist around that ecosystem. So this pod is actually quite a long one as we cover a whole host of issues from blockchain to prop tech to traditional property to urban planning to the retail markets. We go through quite a bit and we even step on the dodgy side of talking about ethics and freedom of speech, but that's not really important to discuss now. So hopefully you'll enjoy the show. Nick, welcome to the Cities Podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. Excellent. Uh, What if you can give a a bit of a description about who you are um, and your journey and how basically you got to PropCoin. Yeah, so um, my journey journey to PropCoin. Um, so my name is Nick Russell and uh, I have a background uh, doing quite a number of different things, I guess, uh, as time goes on. But uh, I started, I came to the UK about 10 years ago and uh, I started getting into sustainability, specifically around management consulting Uh, and new business models. So, you know, when we're looking at how do we implement things like renewable energy, electric vehicles, um, any, any kind of sustainability, uh, exercise, you need, you need to wrap a model around it. Um, what I saw was it's actually quite hard to repurpose existing models in a lot of ways. Uh, and you need to build new models. And so I was a management consultant for about five years, uh, working with, you know, major corporates like Tesco, Shell, Barclays, uh, some Chinese companies, and then from that moved into a company called We Are Pop-Up, which was around creating a new business model for the short-term use of retail space. I mean, as you'll know, uh, there was a lot of activity in that sector. Um, And ultimately, you know, we ran that business for about four and a half years before selling it uh, to a company based out of the Netherlands. And coming out of that, uh, I saw a real core problem Uh, with the real estate markets. And it was predominantly around price. So, you know, you started Appear Here. I mean, Appear Here was very much how do we look at the stuff in the center of London and how do we bring art, culture, life, uh, you know, into kind of the the very well-run commercial areas. We Are Pop-Up was the the next step over from that, which was how do we repurpose vacant space, you know, things in, you know, say Shoreditch, Peckham, 
you know, like in New York, kind of in the Lower East Side at the time. How do we <clears throat> repurpose space in a new way and create a fractional use model around that? Now, one of the big issues we had with We Are Pop-Up uh, that resulted in us kind of selling it and moving on was when we looked at the bid-ask spread of landlords and potential tenants, uh, though your average uh, landlord in London wanted 80 pounds a day, and our average tenant offer was 30 pounds a day. And I mean, there's a lot of reasons for this. You know, if we look at what's going on with Amazon and e-commerce, uh, I was looking over the weekend in the FT that actually e-commerce hit in the UK, I think, 18% now, which is about 4% ahead of projections that we had made in 2015. So e-commerce is growing uh, much, much faster than anybody anticipated. That put a lot of downward pressure on on retailer uh, revenues, retailer profit margins. So after four years of running Wear Pop Up, you know, I looked at the data, and landlords wanted eighty pounds, tenants a day, tenants were offering thirty, and so you had this phenomenal price discrepancy. And so coming out of that, uh, started wondering, how can you not know what something's worth? You know, so in other words, how can we have a situation where? You know, I mean, at this point, I think um, retail vacancy rates in London are still probably somewhere between eight and ten percent. Uh, we're not building enough new housing. You know, we have a, a pricing crisis in the residential markets. Like when you look at real estate as a whole, the pricing mechanisms for it—they uh, just don't seem to be working very well. Um, so uh, that led me to a project uh, with UCL. So my co-founder, we are pop-up, was a guy called Alistair Moore who currently runs a predictive analytics course at UCL Business School, uh, School of Management. And he was sitting on a project that was super interesting called 360, which was about aggregating city, city data all in one place. So it was a consortium of European universities, or about five of them. Uh, and to the work you're doing with Conscious Cities, this would be a big step forward. The idea was when you look at a city and you look at the data within a city, there is no one place for it. You know, so if you look at London, TFL has a piece and the valuation office has a piece and Landreg has a piece and Facebook has a piece and Google has a piece. There is no way you can look at a city from the top and say what's going on. What you can do is you can search a variety of different databases, some which are public, some which are not. So the idea of the 360 project was if you wanted to know, for example, where there's jazz in London tonight, you can go to Facebook and you can search Facebook. And you will get the Facebook interpretation of jazz. You can go to Google and search Google and you will get the Google interpretation of jazz and all the way down, Eventbrite, Universe, everything else. Uh, so when you're actually, right now, when you're searching a city, you're not searching a city, you're searching a representative database. And there's currently no real way to search across the city and create a data set of a place. Right? Rather, you get a derivative data set that happens to be part of the place. Uh, and in many cases, it's proprietary. You can have some of it, not all of it. You know, For example, uh, Uber, they're opening up some of their, um, their transport database to city planners and different kind of policymakers, but they're doing it on a case-by-case -case basis, certain parts of it. So the idea of this 360 project was, could you create essentially a semantic web store that sat over the top of all the other databases and gave you a single point of contact to where you could start mapping a city uh, in a more true form. So we started looking at that. <clears throat> and then in looking at that, I started to think, you know, machine learning was breaking kind of in 2016, you know, DeepMind uh, 
was running the AlphaGo series. And we've had a huge revolution. You know, the more data there is, the more kind of deep analysis tools there are. And so I got very interested in the idea of can you use data to actually give better pricing methodologies to real estate? You know, can you look at a data set and look at market performance and now use the available, available data to more closely correlate something that gives you actual land value? Uh, and from that, um, I'm working with a guy on a project called PropCoin, PropCoin.ai. Uh, we built a predictive model which can predict uh, London property prices one to three years in advance. Uh, it's an interesting model, so it's about 75% accurate, meaning if it builds a portfolio uh, of London property, it wins 25% more often than it loses, um, better than random chance. From there, we've back-tested some portfolios where we outperform the market on a, a kind of fund basis by 2 to 7x. And so what we found is there is definitely a signal in the data. And for that, we're using pricing data. But now we're also starting to, to build in macroeconomic signals and local data. And this is where it dovetails with the idea of the 360 project, which is if we can capture more data and if we can align that to known pricing information, we can start to create uh, predictions about future price that will be more accurate than kind of just waiting to see what happens. Uh, it's been very interesting. It's very, been a very interesting journey. Um, you know, through it, we've seen some facets. Like I'll give you a very brief example. So we looked at the data around 2010. The signals in the data start indicating uh, high growth around Romford in East London. Now, this was before the final kind of crossrail announcements and before everything really came to the surface, but you started to see these initial blips in the area. And... What's interesting about that is it wasn't being picked up in the main data set. What it was being picked up in was the momentum changes in these areas. So from that, we decided um, you can do kind of two things. One is you could build a private equity fund around it, which would be interesting, although it wouldn't really move things forward. I mean, that'd be a very straightforward business. Uh, we plumbed that a lot. I don't know that there's the appetite for it. Like one thing I think that's interesting about real estate innovation is the people who sit in real estate don't often think about maximum upside. They just kind of think about continuous return. And so therefore, if you go and you sit and you say, I have this methodology, which can really outperform the market, uh, there wasn't a huge volume of interest in that. Well, a lot of the industry is also based on the minimization of risk. Yes, Yes. Well, I mean, looking at the data we have, the risk profile was unchanged, you know, which is where I think you get true innovation. Uh, it's like a, a true, it's not an innovation if I can double your return and I also double your risk. You know, it is an innovation if I can give you twice the return with either the same amount or less risk, which is what uh, our model can do. Then we started to think about, um, and this is quite an important thread, I think, both for myself, for PropCoin, but also for what a lot of people around kind of city and geo data are doing. And I mean, innovation in general, but I think specifically around what we're doing, which is if what you do is create an innovation, then try to build it into the existing models. Uh, it's very difficult because you're not really respecting the innovation. You know what I mean? It's, um, I can give you this whole new way of doing this, but at the same time, it's not really using the potential of that innovation. It's almost like an artist has an idea in their head, and as soon as they actually perform it, they write it, they paint it, 
they 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 live it it's almost well where's the next one it's not come right you're almost diluting it by creating it in a certain way to take a kind of existential mm. creative question or an analogy to it that as soon as you try to assimilate the innovation into an, an existing format you are by default reducing it is that yes as you're saying well it would be like if apple had launched the iphone and not launched uh the app store you know, like once you have this mini computer in your hands, if they would have replicated existing phone technology and said, well, there's a default set of apps, there's not a lot of fluidity in those apps, uh, it's like you have this amazing thing that has absolutely terrible battery life. You know, and there, there, there were a lot of negatives that came along with the iPhone as well. So it's like the innovation is that it can do anything and there are costs. And so it's like in order to balance the costs, you have to really embrace all of the new things it can do and start creating new models around what it can do rather than just saying, like, as a phone, I remember when the iPhone came out, everybody said, it's amazing at everything except being a phone. As a phone, it's a terrible phone. And so you have to look at, you know, what else can it do? And so when we look at our algorithm, it, it where we've gotten to with PropCoin is, okay, if we just take this into kind of a normal context, uh, most of it's wasted, you know, because it requires that... that Existing investors would ma have to massively change their methodologies, and yes, they're going to get this huge benefit, but there's going to be a huge retooling cost for them, you know, because you're going to start like one. I'll tell you this uh, that I found I find interesting about machine learning and uh, portfolio construction in real estate. One of the hardest things that will happen in this area, you have to let the machine play, you know, like in other words, you have to let the machine trade. And so if you were to adopt our methodology to go for the 2 to 7x return, you would basically have to do what it told you because it's a trading model and it wins more than it loses, but it's going to lose and it's going to make some decisions you don't like. You know, like it's going to say, go here. And you're going to look at it. Anybody from the real estate industry, I mean, you know this industry, they're going to say, oh, no, absolutely not. I'm not going to go there because that, that place never wins. And it's like, you have to. And so taking something like this to mainstream finance, uh, like I said, there's a bunch of costs they have to absorb. And so you see with the innovation that, you know, it's like, okay, when it comes to a real estate model, you know, it's a lot like the iPhone. It's, um, it's not the best kind of traditional real estate investment strategy, you know? So then we went and we said, what else could this do? You know, we said, now we have this, uh, if you were to start a real estate investment vehicle today, what would that look like? And so obviously, like everybody else in the world, uh, we started looking at the blockchain. And we went through another iteration of that where we took this concept and we moved the back end of it toward the blockchain and essentially created a blockchain hedge fund. Uh, and we worked out a lot of the nuances, you know, I mean, it was very interesting conceptually. Uh, and even then, you know, we, we hit the next iteration, which is there's a whole raft of risks and conflicts that you take on when you look at the blockchain, you know, KYC, AML, uh, the Know Your Customer, and anti-money laundering regulations. Right, right. Uh, you know, things like how do you distribute dividends? And once again, you know, if you take it to a traditional investor and you say, here's this, they say, well, I want this, I want that. 
Uh, where is that? Can I ask, to what extent yeah. when you were referencing uh, you have to do what the machine tells you, isn't this what the finance industry and traditional finance has been pivoting towards since probably the early 90s? I mean, I got a, a great soundbite from a conference where someone who said, look, the real estate industry is where finance was in the early 90s. So where you had a 90% split of traders and a 10% you had perhaps they just called them the technologists, the yeah. people that worked at the back-end system. Today, it's a complete reverse. You've got 90% technologists, data scientists, yeah. uh, in all shapes and forms, and 10% traders going, how do I actually broker this deal? So, But there is algorithmic trading. There is trading that just happens without human direction other than to lead the, 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 the algorithm, or for want of a better phrase, in the first place. Is that what you are saying that in, you know, really we're just 20, 30 years behind these guys that it's not completely a new process. There just has to be a preparation that we're about to step into something. But this has already been done. So surely sort of investors, investment is aware of this process. Are you saying it's just the mentality of those in traditional real estate investment and development and planning are just so antiquated towards these approaches that it's it's hitting its own wall as such? Yeah, I think I think I wouldn't say you're you're in the 90s, I would say you're probably in the 70s, um, <laughs> where there's not yet a big movement towards incorporating the data. You know, what do you mean by incorporating the data? Then you expand on that a little bit. Um, so for, I found this fascinating, uh, and I'll, I'll just riff for a second that. Chinese shopping center operator Wanda. Yeah. Right. Everybody knows Wanda. Um, three years ago, Wanda was heaving, and it was a, the, the one of the biggest companies in China. True success story. Well, it's not falling on hard times, and it's you know they're having to, to sell off some of the portfolio. Uh, and who's coming in to invest? And it's Alibaba, JD.com, uh, and you're getting a bunch of technology operators who are now coming in. And there's a very interesting mindset shift, which is rather than just acquire portfolios and acquire and acquire and acquire and acquire, there you're now at a phase where saying, okay, you have enough, and now we can optimize this uh, massively because we're going to take data-driven approaches. We're going to integrate uh, all different kinds of data, and we're going to start optimizing this portfolio now. And you see a very similar thing with Amazon and Whole Foods. I mean, Whole Foods, which started the organic grocery trend, uh, really came to... Yeah, you know, they built kind of an empire around it. Then, you know, in the U.S., I mean, Whole Foods is credited with really driving the organic agenda to the forefront, and everybody else came with them. Uh, and you had Whole Foods in a situation where it's like, okay, where's the growth going to come from? And Amazon said, well, you know, we're going to use data for that. Uh, I, to, to push a hot button, you know, it's very similar to uh, Uber and wherever they go, the taxi industry. You know, I think, um, you know, there were some stories over the weekend about Uber in London, uh, and you still, what I find amazing about this is you still see taxi companies pushing back or, or you see black cab operators pushing back and they say, you know, they don't make living wage and this and that and the other thing. And it's like, okay, if you're, if you, a black cab has three rate settings, you know, and I think it's like daytime, afternoon, and then weekend, you know, and you see that in the UK, you see that in France, you see that all around. Uh, now there's Uber with almost a infinitely variable uh, pricing structure, you know, so you can take pool, you can take X, you can take Lux, you can take black, you can take a van, you know, you can, uh, there'll be surge pricing depending on where you are and when. And so they're using all of this data to optimize asset use. 
And this is what I see is going on now with Wanda, which is, it's like, okay, well, you have a big enough real estate portfolio. What are we going to do with it? <laughs> you know, so when I look at the real estate industry, I mean, you still have the guys who are location, 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 you know, who, uh, it's about networks. It's about who you know. It's about, you know, I'm only going to buy in Manhattan. I'm, you know, if you buy real estate in Manhattan uh, on the south part of the island, you'll always do well. You know, and there are these kind of hard and fast rules. And when I say you have to let the machine trade, it's like one of the issues with Uber is you can't have the drivers dictating which jobs are going to take and not to a large degree. You know, it works as a network and an ecosystem. And so I see with real estate, like we are going to get to this, you know, we're starting to get more and more data. We're starting to be able to use that data in different ways. Uh, and so the idea with PropCoin was it, how can we, first of all, use this data to create a system that could see signals in the market and go basically, re, you know, read the future. And I would say it doesn't actually read the future. It reads the present. And what most people are reading is the past, uh, we looked at the blockchain and said, can we just put it on the blockchain? There were a number of problems with that. So then we developed an entirely new business model. Um, I'm not going to go into any detail now because you know, we're looking to get this started and that's kind of, uh, that gets into the secret sauce. But <laughs> what we saw was if you're going to use the blockchain, you have to do something with the blockchain that you cannot do, that you cannot do otherwise. <clears throat> so in other words, if you're going to use artificial intelligence... You know, there's a thing in the startup world, which is like, if you can remove AI from the business and the business still works, then it's not an AI-driven business. And I would say if you can remove the blockchain from whatever you're looking at and it still works, then the blockchain is not a constituent part of it. And so, you know, we, we really just want to get all the buzzwords in there. So it's prop tech, it's AI, it's blockchain, <laughs> it's revolutionary. Um, but the interesting thing about that is that we've now been able to create essentially an entirely new business model for residential real estate, uh, both for investors and for tenants. Uh, I mean, something that would really change the way people live. You know, going back to the iPhone, uh, you know, Apple, everybody says, oh, what's your first mover advantage? Yet, if you look continuously, you know, it's a uh, Nick Katz from uh, Acasa likes to say it. I don't want to be the first mover. I want to be the last mover. You know, Apple is the last mover. I want to make the last computer. I want to make the last phone. Google made the last search engine. Uh, Amazon may or may not make the last retail store. But, uh, you know, this is one of those business models where if it works, it will be such a step change over the previous model that you, you won't even be able to comprehend that there was a day when you went the old way. You know, a lot like WeWork. Uh, like WeWork is taking over. Uh, yeah, it would be hard to imagine, you know, if you went to a, a company that's using WeWork and it's like, okay, you have this digital office where your people can actually fan out and they can go to 14 different countries and have the same experience no matter where they are. Would you say actually bin that contract and let's just consolidate everybody on a long-term 20-year lease? You know, like, w would you go backward? And so uh, what we're experimenting with is can we, can we make that model work? Can we bring it to fruition? Uh, do we have all the pieces? And uh, I mean, that's the that's the exciting bit. So uh, to connect that journey, <laughs> you know, I started out looking at alternative business models for corporations. Uh, I went through a prop tech business where you saw one of the biggest uh, issues in the area was price. Came out of that and started to see the power of data and how data is absolutely going to change real estate. I mean, everything we've seen now is is the elevator music in the lobby you know of the theater before you even get to the screen right like this is this is literally chapter negative one 
uh, where you're going to see this stuff go is going to be absolutely amazing. And so now we're looking at PropCoin, which is how do we really integrate blockchain and create uh, you know, a new business model around it. So awesome. Thank you, Nick. It's, um, I, w- I want to pick apart two elements of that. Yeah. So uh, one of it might just be me hypothesizing or, or thinking about it, but it's, it's an idea that's been going around in, in my head for a little while. So you mentioned um, how do we take wider economic data sets and start to understand perhaps a more a perhaps truer value of land as opposed to the one dictating force which is kind of falsified demand and constrained mm. supply which is driving up just traditional land value prices it's it's the principal problem of a housing market in any location where certainly in the major cities i saw a great quote um i can't remember the the phrase it might be it might, might be from the financial times but it said that it are talking about london demand is global supply is local mm. and and so what we're getting are these constrained forces that by default by sheer default of supply and demand let alone quality that the nuance of quality is only affecting value ever so slightly mm. um in that you will still find seven figure value properties adjacent to a train line uh, the perceived value of a seven-figure amount of money to any individual is is enormous, but yet it's seen as a basic standard. So, when looking at perhaps wider economic data sets mm. and maybe having a more a bit of fluidity in response to those, are you saying that there is potential to base value much more on perhaps a truer quality or a more natural quality rather than a traditional? Well, everyone, let's just try and keep you know those who own will always benefit and those who don't well tough tough luck hopefully we'll get someone who has some more money coming in i think it's more nuanced than that you know i think uh if we get into your realm here um there's been a number of studies now saying that the more time you spend commuting the the less overall happy you are and in fact the lowest point of people's lives i remember this quite clearly from a study uh, they said one of the happiest people are in their lives uh, was in the pub with their friends. You know, um, people's children, it was kind of hit or miss. You know, was, uh, sometimes <laughs> they're happy, sometimes. And this was a, it was a study done with a, a device where it went off randomly and uh, you just inputted, you know, what you were doing and how happy you were. <clears throat> and they found de facto the most negative experience anybody has is commuting. It doesn't matter uh, whether it's on a train, on a bus, in a car, whatever. I think there was a threshold of 20 minutes. It's like you can basically deal with 20 minutes, and after that, uh, it's irrelevant. And we'll come to this in some of the figures that I brought to share today. But uh, when you think about that, you have data around that now. You know, you have data which says, you know, qualitatively, and if, uh, probably quantitatively as well. Uh, it is not the fact that, you know, you just grin and bear it, you know, and, and you get on a train and this is your life. It's like you know now that you are unhappy. You know, and so the data that we're looking at is, you know, things like uh, restaurant reviews, you know, or things like school uh, schools is huge. I mean, no longer is it you go and you talk to the parents. You can actually track school performance by uh, where do people start? Where do people finish? What schools do they go to? I mean, you have such a data rich environment now where when you look at place, you know, you start to see all these layers stacked up, you know, and this was the idea of the 360 project that around a, a, a one, one single map point, you know, so you call that map point, you know, in Paris, you say, here's the Louvre, 
you know, and you will have an educational map that goes around that where you say, okay, if I fan out in every direction, here's the, the kind of educational surface, you know, which changes as you go. And then you say, here's the entertainment surface. Here's the transport surface. And so when you're looking at this data, all of a sudden you're getting huge amount of insight into what actually is a place. You know, I think one thing that's quite funny is um, on, on, on a book valuation basis, mm-hmm. uh, I think West London is doing quite well, you know? On a qualitative valuation basis, I think East London is doing incredibly better because I can't find anybody that wants to move to West London. You know, like uh, <laughs> I, I was talking to a fellow in, in West London and he's, you know, he's an entrepreneur. He's in his early 30s. He's just had a, a child and he lives in South Kent and he works in Notting Hill and or Holland Park. And, uh, you know, every time West London, that's the dream. That's amazing. And he's like, not for me, man. He was like, I was priced out of shortage. You know, and so what I find amazing about this is when you're talking about pricing, uh, the first thing that this brings up in my mind is uh, people talk about, the, you know, James Clark from the LSE is, is famous for talking about the Bitcoin price. And he says, look, it's not priced like a currency, it's priced like an equity. And this is why you saw the precipitous drop last week, because basically if you look at the amount of Bitcoin that's traded, uh, it's, I think today we looked and it was 2.4% of the total volume today. That was the amount of Bitcoin the market cap traded. Uh, the example for, on average, I think uh, large cap equities is about 0.5% of the market cap on a trading day. And when you look at AIM, it's like about a tenth of that. But what's happening is all the Bitcoin being sold today is pricing all the other Bitcoin. You know, So it's like it's pricing the Bitcoin that's not being sold. And I think in the housing market, what's really funny is Every time you get a stall in the market, people stop selling because they don't want to reprice it. You know, and this is exactly what we saw uh, with We Are Pop Up in in retail. You know, you you had people who had their shops vacant because they had an asset value to them. They were on their books. You know, this yeah. is the book value of our assets. And we said, well, we'll just come in. And they said, look, if I let it to you, whatever the rent you give me becomes its new value. So it's cheaper for me to leave it empty and pay the rates on it because I, I retain my 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 debt rating. You know, and so what I find about place that's quite interesting is, let's say, let's say we sold all the property in the UK at once. You know, like right now, we put it all on the market. Uh, what would that price map look like? You know, like if everybody reshuffled, it's like, okay, we'll just do over, right? Like we're all going to come out and then we're going to start again and we're going to reprice everything. And so when you're talking about the traditional methodologies of place and value, it's like, it's quite blunt. It's like, I go to South Ken, South Ken is expensive because South Ken's been expensive. You know, like South Ken is nice because South Ken's been nice. But actually, there's a whole thing. Like, if you're younger, you don't want to live in South Ken. Like, they're moving the entire center of London. You know, London's going to turn into essentially three or four cities. But now people want to be in Shoreditch. And uh, one of the reasons this guy said, he's like, oh, yeah. He's like, everything's new over there. You got all the cool restaurants. You know, you have higher ceilings. You have more space. And this is maybe a bit, a bit gauche, but he said, you have better toilets. He said, for example, when you go to a restaurant in West London, he's like, it's a very small, compact toilet. You know, the restaurant's changed over. And he's like, when you go in East London, the entire space has been refurbished. It's new. It's big. It's bright. It's beautiful. And uh, what I find interesting about the data is this is the data we're starting, or this is the, the intuition we're starting to pull out of the data. Because we have all these layers. Back to the Louvre example, you know, I now have what's a transport map, what's a social map, you know, what do I want, 
and where is it in the city? You know, and I think um, when it comes to valuation, you know, you're talking about supply and demand. I, I don't think it's 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 that going to be that binary. You know, because it used to be okay. Like, let's do the decision tree. So, number one, am I buying or renting? It's like okay, so I'm going to buy. Now, how much can I buy? Well, how much are you earning? You say, well, I'm earning this much. It's like okay, you can get a mortgage at sixty to eighty percent LTV. So here's what you can buy. You know, and I love the the illusion of choice because it's not really you don't really have that much choice in a market like London, mm. right? You can choose. I want a one bedroom uh, inside zone two. I want a two bedroom you know, zone two, zone three, or I want a three bedroom somewhere where guess what? My commute goes up, you know? So you start to get all these factors around what is happiness and what does it mean? And what do I want? You know, like if I'm raising a family and I have three children and, uh, you know, my partner can work remotely, then yes, maybe I will sit on a train every day for an hour and go back and forth, you know, accepting the fact that like 12 hours of my life are going to be what the rest of humanity ranks as the least happy thing possible. But it's never sustainable, that, that side of things. You do see people eventually going, that's it, I'm, I'm done with this. It's, it's such an inefficient factor for, like, you know, for productivity, right. con- continuity in businesses. It's, it's a huge problem that businesses face. Mm. They're trying to understand how do we, how do we um, satellite offices. But you right. know, before you talked about, do we congregate everyone together? Do we provide complete um, uh, you know, freedom, you know, the whole yeah. flexible working? And there's, that conversation is still massively open to criticism from working at home. Is it productive? Is it right to go work at a little cafe? cafe before you get to work it's it's there's almost two i mean i think that that's actually another topic i'm going to cover soon in in conscious cities is Mm. the role of the workplace as such but um you know it it it's a almost like a falsified economy to say well let's continue building further and further out into the regions just to support travel into the center because that's that's one of the issues is that we have yes almost like a, a poor distribution of services in cities that demand that transport, that demand, that break, that real break in the human, as such. Well, I don't want to get. I don't want to get too far off topic here. I mean, we could that that you could run a week long conference of that and fill, you know, every minute of it, and people would still be discussing in the bar. I mean, I think that there are actually two global conferences. <laughs> that cover that, yeah, yeah. So. No, I think uh, I think that's absolutely one of the fundamental questions we are facing, uh, especially you know in cities like London, New York, Paris, Hong Kong, where. Uh, you have, you know, you would say supply and demand. I would actually say you need to further bisect those into you have asset supply, asset demand, use supply, and use demand. You know, because you have these things which are sitting as assets yeah. uh, on somebody's books, and there's a whole buy and sell of the asset portion. And then there's a buy and sell of the use portion, you know, and I think, um, you know, both you and I, this was the, the, the genesis of our last business was, you know, those are now separated. Like the asset value of a retail space is no longer its use value, you know, like its use value may be one thing at one point in time, it may be another thing at another point in time, and actually, how do you flex that model? Yeah. And so I think the conversation that we're having is, what is the asset value what you know? What is the long-term value? What is the the concrete value, versus what is the use value? You know, what is the what is the kind of deterministic value? You know, what is what is the 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 immediate value? You know. So, is, is this a question that you're looking to answer, or at least question harder in um, in PropCoin? Because you talk about the residential market. So, the second part was okay. So, we've got 
you know, are, are we looking at new valuation systems? Mm. Perhaps. The second part is, okay, let, let's take apart the residential model because it, it's different. I mean, the, you know, Conscious Cities is an, an international movement. Yes, we're focused on this series here in London. Um, and we talk about a lot about the UK, but picking apart any major city residential in cities is very different to the residential dynamics in countryside. So um, wh- where are you kind of looking at a focus? Where is your most interesting element of, if, you know, are you focusing on the use value and the use case in in more, uh, perhaps more remote regions, or are you really trying to focus on a city center kind of view? I mean, the logic, it'll, it'll work anywhere the data supports it. Uh, to answer that question, what I think it does is it disconnects those two pieces, you know, and it, it creates, uh, it's, I mean, it's, it's a very succinct way of putting it. Uh, it connects supply to supply and demand to demand, or it takes use supply to use demand, and it takes uh, asset supply to asset demand, right? And so rather than, uh, like, I'll give you a question. So <laughs> what I love, I, what I love is I love yield. You know, I love yield Yep. because personally I find yield to be one of the largest pieces of nonsense I've ever seen, <laughs> which is you are going to denominate the rent paid in, in proportion to the asset value at the time at the, t- well, and it's, and it will change. And like, as economic forces change and it's like, what I find funny about yield is like, choose which side of it you're on. Like, if it's a reporting figure, I think that's great. Like, if you say, I can get 4%, and, like, backward-looking, this was our yield. But when you try and build it in forward, I mean, this is exactly the problem we ran into uh, with commercial with commercial retail, which was, like, I need a 4% yield. No, you don't. No, you will get what the market will bear. And, like, by saying it's 4% everywhere else, so it's going to be 4% here. Uh, I mean, this is, a side, this is actually another use of PropCoin, which is, you know, if you set the machine learning model to T equals zero, it will give you actual price now, asset price. But I see that as completely divorced from yield because, uh, you know, like one of my favorite things about this is if you go to Slush in Helsinki, uh, Slush is a very unique conference and Helsinki is not very big. And they literally run out of flights, they run out of hotel rooms, which is what makes the conference so great because it's actually, there's a natural limitation to it. You know, like it can't expand endlessly. Like at some point, uh, you have to call it. And during this, you will see people who will go hang out with their friends. They'll put their flat on Airbnb. And, you know, uh, I rented a studio from a fellow, and I think it was 110 a night. And I was going to be there for five nights, so that's 550 euros. Uh, You know, and for him, he's like, that's great. Now, the yield of that property during slush... (laughs) was massive over any other yield you would look at, right? And so it's like, I, I think trying to measure these things, you know, in that manner, I, I just don't know. I just don't know how effective it is. So when we're talking about new valuation frameworks, one of the things we're talking about is, you know, I will, I think this is a, something that probably you're looking at, which is, personally, I know quite a few people are trying to go into the bundled idea of real, of residential, which is, I'm going to include everything for you. I'm going to include all the services. And then you will pay over the rent for that. So if you know, if I say, here's the rent and here's the energy, you know, here's the electricity, here's the water, here's the gas, here's the cleaning, here's the insurance, you will have a price. <clears throat> what if I stack all that and give you house as a service? You know, will you pay more for that? I imagine people will because they're already doing it in every other sector. 
You know, like Airbnb has a, a, a side effect is relocation housing and companies are happy to pay for it because they don't have to go do all the individual things. And it's a big time saver. Uh, it's what WeWorks managed to do, you know? And so I think when, when we're looking at value, uh, absolutely there's new ways to measure value and that's what we're looking to do. And I mean, back to the previous question, that's what this data is going to allow you to do because it's going to give you the data lake to be able to get the answer because right now you, you can't, you don't know the answer. And previously you didn't know the answer. You're like, okay, I can bundle all these services. What do I have to compare it to? So, so who's your kind of customer? So we, we talk about here's, here's a new model that can help a broken system. Um, we have a broken system of the affordability of a product is being destroyed through raising of land prices. Equally, in many cities around the world, construction and development is very expensive and very difficult. The material production is only just about having some innovations come into it. So we're, we're still hit with a huge pricing block. Hmm. Um, so, to, so where are you looking to come in with Procoin? And perhaps you know your view on that residential market. Are you saying to you know to people? Uh, family owners are you saying to individuals who instead of maybe buying a second property if they can and doing it on a buy to let to try and look at their returns um, uh, or is this for institutional investors for a sort of a new method so if, if we've got a new way to perhaps identify value from a property and access the value because this is part of the point of of Procrine, is it not that it through a perhaps blockchain system? Yeah, uh, I'm I'm not very versed in blockchain, so apologies if I get this wrong, Nick, and anyone listening. But you know, you're you're almost um, in 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 a term sort of democratizing access to it if you are allowing access to anybody rather than having to go through a massive pooled fund, etc., like that. So where are you trying to intersect most? Is it the family? Is it the private investor? Is it the institutional investor? Uh, let's let's <clears throat> let's start by uh, let's look at the industry and let's look at where innovation is in what we'd say residential real estate ownership and usage. Okay. So uh, <clears throat> I've conducted a recent review, and when we look at real estate crowdfunding, you know, which is a, a new access for the investor to the asset class. Um, that it's fractional asset ownership and access to the market. So in the U.S., um, real estate crowdfunding in 2015 was $4 billion. Uh, this year it's six and a half. And I found examples that current assets under management of real estate crowdfunding are about $10 billion. Uh, doesn't sound like much, <clears throat> except when you consider that those steaks and slices are coming in 50 uh, or 5, 10, 15K chunks. The minimum, I think, for property partner is 250 pounds. For property moose, I think, is 10 pounds. <laughs> uh, so let's talk about the first evolution, which is I can buy a house. <clears throat> you know, I can buy a house, uh, buy to let. Uh, and, you know, depending on where I am, I can look at the ticket size and, you know, it's going to go from there. You know, I mean, in London, you're looking at probably a minimum of four, 450. Uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff that comes along with that liability and everything else. So now you've had the, the first wave of innovation, which I think is probably about five years old. Uh, you can get access for 10 pounds, right? So when you look at what crowdfunding has done, it has reduced the, the barrier to entry from, you know, in London, let's go back. It was probably at that time, maybe 350, 400 to 10, right? So that on this, on the, on the, 
uh, supply capital supply side of the market, you have had a, a, a singular innovation, which is applying the crowdfunding model to real estate, uh, and you've seen a massive shift in the idea of uh, income property. You know, to the point where it's like you don't have to go manage it. You don't have to do all these things on top of it. Now we're just going to aggregate capital via the mechanisms. And um, I was quite surprised. Maybe this surprises you as well, but equity crowdfunding. Uh, you know, your crowd cubes and your cedars, uh, they're doing well, they're doing well in the US, they're doing well in the UK, not as well as the financial instruments are doing. <laughs> because essentially, the financial instruments came in and they say, you know, we're going to give you assets. And because they have valuations and because there's, there's title and dirt in the ground and security, uh, it's very easy to break that up into fractional use. You know, because we know what it should be. And so it's like, okay, if one of you owns it, it's 400. If two of you own it, it's 200 each. If, you know, 100 of you own it, then it's, you know, whatever the math ends up being, as small as you want to slice it up. And property moose is showing. It's like, okay, 10 pounds, <laughs> right? Like, uh, which is amazing. And you can do it because there's no question on the other end. You know, it's like uh, you can value it. In the end, it will have a value because it is an asset. Uh, whereas the, the equity crowdfunding platforms, I mean... I don't want to. I don't want to offend anybody uh, by saying this, but I have a serious problem with the equity crowdfunding platforms because if you look at the power law that VCs are exposed to, you know they say you need. A, I think it's at least thirty to to even consider yourself uh, to be beginning of diversification. You know, I think a lot of the VCs when you look at their portfolios, the big you know the big boys, uh, they'll be across 200, 300, 400, 500, 600. You know, it's like, companies? Or yeah, companies. Yeah, right, okay. Individual companies. Yeah. So you need a high number of assets to diversify for your risk. I mean, the same way, you know, when you look at somebody like Land Securities, they got properties all over the country in different areas, you know, doing different things, uh, different tenants, you know, they're they're diversified. And I think with 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 startups and with equity investing, you know, if you're not if you're not investing in a fund, you're trying to choose winners. So if I and this has a high relevance, I think, when we come to the blockchain. But I think one of the reasons on the supply side, the innovation is because it's an asset, because I know it's value and because it will be sold and because there are contracts around it, I can very easily section that up into little pieces and offer them in different ways. So that's the supply side. Now, the next layer we can look at is start to look at the demand side. And so that, now we have the property and for the investor, uh, you know, and then you have things, you have things where you can either buy a property on a uh, kind of uh, buy to let basis, or you can actually invest in a crowd crowdfunded mortgage, you know, via peer to peer platform. Then you have the models like Stride Up and the Unmortgage coming along, which are actually saying, you know, the 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 concept of ownership needs to be shifted. So actually, we, it's not that we need to give investors different access, or we can kind of move forward in innovation. It's that you know, basically, unless you can get a massive deposit together. Uh, you can't get in the market, right? So you have a binary situation where it's like buy or rent, you know, and these guys are coming in the middle and they're saying, well, actually, look, there's another area in there, which is shared ownership. I mean, shared ownership is a government scheme. Uh, largely, that's how most people will know it. And it was designed to stair step people up. Now, I did some research on shared ownership last year and I found out de facto it's not working. You know, so people get in and the whole idea is you get in and you buy more of it. And then when you want to leave, you sell it. And this is a very elegant solution. The problem with that is uh, the space, the houses are generally custom built for shared ownership, and the only other people 
that they're attractive to are the people on shared ownership scheme, you know, and, and you have a different kind of economic problem that I think prevents that system from really working. So what these guys have done is they've brought shared ownership kind of out of the kind of bottom of the market into the middle of the market. And they're saying, yeah, hey, look, you know, like go choose the house you want to live in. Uh, we can get a mortgage on the part, you know, like uh, we can get 80% LTV. Like, okay, you don't have 20, that's fine. You can bring five and we'll bring the other 15. You know, and uh, there's a company out of the U.S. called Point, which is, you know, offering kind of reverse mortgages on that. And what's really interesting is, you know, coming back to the data, there's very, there's very fine resolution of the data now, and these guys can price those models. So whereas a bank is just going in saying, okay, I'm going to use the home track AVM, and we know it's plus minus kind of 5% each direction, I have to have a capital cushion, so therefore, I'm not going to lend at what the market is, I'm going to give myself another 10, 20%, so actually I'm going to underlend. These guys are coming in, they're saying, okay, I can more accurately value that asset. Like, I know I can take equity risk on this, and so actually, I can come in and be the second equity buyer, and essentially it's bank of mom and dad for people without bank of mom and dad. You know, so that's starting to be on, on the demand side. Well, I want to take that to the next level, which is, okay, I mean, crowdfunding is awesome. Crowdfunding for real estate, I think it's going to be a huge market. You know, I think it's, uh, I think it's very natural. Uh, I think there are a lot of advantages to it. Then on the demand side, I think, you know, you see the, the shared ownership scheme. Uh, where we're looking to push this is rather than shared ownership in a property, shared ownership in a fund. You know, so if I'm a tenant, rather than paying rent, you know, because one of the weaknesses of the kind of stride up and then mortgage model is you still have to pay rent on the part you don't own. And I mean, these are great in situations where you're looking at uh, salaries going up or some kind of, um, you know, economic progression. However, if, if that's not what you're looking at, or you want to have a family and there's gonna be other costs involved, you're not necessarily going to be able to buy that additional, those additional equity slices. And so what we're looking at to do here is how can we literally reinvent the model so that uh, we have, to an investor, it looks like a crowdfunding proposition, and to a tenant, it looks like a micro-ownership proposition. Now, I'll give you some numbers. I brought some numbers. Cool. Uh, we would so like we numbers. Talk about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, to, just to keep it real. Um, you know, I, I'll, let's take a few givens here. So the first given is that, as you said, the cycle is breaking down. Uh, I would attribute that... Um, Essentially, two, I would say two primary uh, factors. You know, the first one is people are living longer <laughs> and you're seeing uh, more demand for the space. You know, I mean, typically when people were living shorter lives, there would have been a, a faster recycling of assets, you know, and I think now uh, you're not seeing that. And I, so I think the constraints on the supply are twofold. You know, I think number one is you have a situation where, I mean, there, there's more people and they're living longer. Like, what are you going to do? The second thing is so much of the economy is now wrapped up in real estate. You know, if you look at the UK economy as a stack, it's, let's say the UK economy is 8 trillion. Uh, Real estate is five trillion of that. Residential real estate is four trillion of that. Like the mainstream consumption economy, I think, is somewhere between one and a half and two. And so it's like anything you do to kind of wages and salaries and costs magnifies in the property markets. And so now you have a situation where it's like people's pensions are their houses and you had all this money going to buy to let. So it's like we can't just go around and build continuously because somehow we have to maintain the price in the market because we have people who've spent a lot of time and money. Uh, you know, putting 
building those assets and buying them. And so like, you can't just tank them by introducing a huge amount of new supply, but at the same time, you are running out of supply. So take that as a given, that you have a, a essentially a distorted market. And then uh, CBRE did a very interesting study on millennials recently, and uh, I found these numbers to be quite surprising. So uh, 40% of millennials still live with the family, which I think is, is probably higher than it's been in some time. Uh, 35% are renting, and 25% are owning. And if you think about what those numbers really mean, I mean, you're talking about uh, resource identification on a, on, a, on a huge scale. And furthermore, you're talking about people not going out into the consumption economy. Uh, and if you think about the kind of consumption that substitutes for, you know, people are getting married later, they're having smaller families, and so there's a lot more leisure consumption and a lot less kind of asset investment consumption. So you're seeing a shift of the assets and a concentration of them. You know, it's something that feeds on itself. So the more concentrated the assets become, the less people own them, the more of the passive income goes to the fewer people who own them, the more people live at home, the less people own, so the cycle breaks down. Uh, when they surveyed them, so 25% so own, 65% say owning is important. So basically, they're still on, on the mentality that owning is important. I think we'd all agree with that. Uh, well, they've seen the evidence. Through, yeah. In most often cases, the majority of us uh, in our, to have the fabled millennial phrase uh, used, but even, you know, generations are slightly above us. They're directly experiencing the value of uplift that oh, their yeah. parents experienced. Oh, yeah. Through no often discerning uh, effort of their own. It just by chance, by, by movements of economies and population as such. So there is this immediate perception because it has worked. Own something physical that people need. There's not a lot of it. You will get a return. Yeah. It's almost been a very straightforward process. So uh, going back to the data point, I have a family member who uh, bought a house in Los Angeles in, uh, I guess, 1990, around 1990. Uh, I mean, LA has had a massive boost. You know, I mean... Uh, LA is now very cool. It's one of the world's premier markets. This specific area, uh, you know, happened to experience price growth, I think, massive. I mean, you're talking doubling, maybe more than that. Uh, they then, they sold that house and they moved to San Francisco uh, in 2003. So on the tail end of the uh, dot, com. dot com bust and before the massive value appreciation, they, they ended up buying in uh, the East Bay in Oakland, not in the city itself. Uh, and they happened to sit there right through the run-up of venture capital, and they, they ended up selling uh, this house uh, that they bought there. You know, so I mean, when, when you look at these steps, these are each of our steps of about two x. You know, uh, trying to get away from it, uh, they've moved to Seattle. Uh, you know, uh, a reasonable distance from the Amazon headquarters. Mm -hmm. It's now repeating, and and you know, I, I was talking to them, and I was saying. You know, and I said the same thing. I was like, just luck. And uh, they kind of sat back and they said, you know, I tend to like a certain kind of people and I tend to like a certain kind of environment. You know, and uh, they ran through some heuristics they use when they're looking for property. And I think you can represent this as data, right? Because it's like uh, these areas where, you know, there are certain features like coffee shops, access to airports, you know, all of the things where the, the environment is constituent uh, and all you need is kind of an economic draw, an economic boost 
to kind of have the area flower. And so I think you can represent that stuff through data. So I will argue with you that I don't think it's luck. I think you can look at personal preference. And I mean, you know, I know a number of people who have hit these trends. You know, I know a guy who, uh, you know, he did, he did the Berlin cycle. You know, like he got into Berlin before anybody was in Berlin. And he, he, he's done very well out of that just because, you know, there, there was a certain kind of person that, that he was attracted to. Uh, from Berlin, he went to Estonia, you know, and, and it, there, there was a there's a heuristic these people are following, where I don't think. Yeah, they? I, I think for like so for for the benefit of trying to bring myself back some uh, <laughs> credibility in the conversation. So yeah, a, a massive generalizing comment yeah. of uh, do nothing, get returns. Now there are cases in which people have sat and they have benefited by yeah. the default of, a, of equity raise. That doesn't obviously discount those who have arguably looked at their opportunities and benefited even better from them because they've had a better choice. I mean, this is arguably what people like. Um, I think it is Richard Florida. Um, obviously, he talks about the creative class, and I think it was in one of his lectures yes. he did recently at the LSE. I think it's this, again, apologies if I don't get it right, but he one of their metrics was to look at the high um, levels of gay communities. Right. And they said, look, the world right. over... The, you know, when you look at what we consider to be, you know, a funky, interesting, dynamic area for perhaps like, you know, uh, you know, for families that now want to be around with, you know, younger people, these all started out as notoriously strong, deep gay communities. Yeah. And that's where culture and that formula has spread out. So they were kind of going, well, where in the world are we seeing um, these types of communities? Is this where we need to invest? If you pick the major cities, all the major areas, arguably they've all gone now. Sadly, a lot of those gay communities have been dispersed. They're finding new areas where they have to move. You know, to, to have what was an own culture, or you know, this is one of the bigger problems of gentrification. I like that that, that, that yeah, yeah. idea. Um, and it's it's kind of like a, a very sad erosion point. There's a l- little bit of a caveat to what I was saying before about how to identify particular areas and to, to come back more, um, I think this is where, where you're getting. So if you start to take th- these much wider market data points yeah. where you're looking at, um, you could look at, yeah, hard economic data, but perhaps more human data. This is the side that I'm personally hugely interested in. I think there's a lot, you know, people in conscious cities are starting going, well, hang on, what is, you know, let's talk about social capital. Let's talk about the value of, um, of, of community value. How does that, how do we actually start to appropriate that perhaps in a financial value? You know, we start perhaps looking at fighting the, the nimbyism culture, you know, the, the idea that, you know, I find it funny to, you know, to really kind of break that mould of people not wanting property built nearby. If it is from a devaluation point of view of supply and demand, the only way that people will truly be on value is if what's newly built has a direct financial return to them. And it could be down to different social impact levels. It could be down to infrastructure support. It could be that actually there's mutual shared ownership or perhaps having more diverse people in the area actually is seen as a longer-term resilient um uh, sort of economic indicator that might attract investment from sources that want to go, actually, we want to find more diverse communities because we think they're more resilient to the long term because actually the human factors mm. mixed with our economic data is showing these are actually better for us to look at. Mm. So it going to the idea of, okay, so let's take um, this wider economic 
data and let's take mm. more of the human data, mm. um, let's actually find a more natural, perhaps truer value mm. of property. Is that where you kind of really see a, a gap in the market starting to form a yes. lot more with PropCoin? Yeah, I mean, beyond that, uh, I, I don't have a good answer for the idea of, of ownership and supply and demand. You know, it's um, thinking about somewhere like San Francisco, you know, uh, I've lived in San Francisco. I thought it was amazing. And, and what I liked about it was, um, you know, the, the, there was 800,000 people there, 850,000 people now. You could scale up the density and you could, you know, turn it into Hong Kong if you wanted. But what I like about San Francisco is that it's not Hong Kong. And if I'm a San Francisco property owner, I don't know how you navigate the world where you say, you know, it's like, I want it to stay this way. And they said, well, all the jobs are coming here. And so we have to build. And it's like, I mean, you have a real disconnect there because it's, you know, if, if I live in an area, uh, yeah, like where I live, where I live in East London, you know, it's, um, I, I would like it to be quite a bit more built up. Uh, I think it'd be interesting to see that happen, but I also understand there's a lot of people in the area who don't want that, you know? And so I think there, there's a real friction around the concept of who owns what. And, you know, I, I think that's probably going to be more of a social justice question. Uh, than anything else. I mean, I don't. I don't have a good answer for that. I mean, I don't think anyone does have a good answer. It, it's as much. Is um, is it is it almost like an indicator that you're seeing that actually having areas with social capital with probably better cohesion are a more sustainable long term investment? I mean, we uh, a sense from a a, a uh, from a um, qualitative point of mm. view, people will say that, but as we all know, dealing with the majority of investment, it wants quantitative, it wants fact, mm. it wants uh, knowledge. Mm. Arguably, something that I always see was always interested by our conversations and equally what you're doing with PropCoin is that actually, can we start to quantify the, you know, the appropriate elements to start looking at? How can yeah. we add one or two, three or four right. human factors? Right, right, Obviously, right. we don't want to get down to the whole you know, almost like pseudo black mirror concept where, you know, if someone doesn't smile and they yeah, see yeah, on a yeah, CCTV yeah, camera, yeah. the value goes down because they're not happy in that area. So, um, no, I think it's much simpler than that. What, what we're looking to, to do here with this is somebody who lives and rents in an area still has a massive economic contribution to that area. You know, uh, long-term renter, say long-term renter in, uh, somewhere like Bermondsey, you know, which has seen a massive amount of gentrification. A renter in Bermondsey would have been one of the drivers of that gentrification. You know, they would have been going to work, say, in the city, and they're coming home. You know, they're decorating their house. They're inviting their friends around. A cafe opens. They're going to spend at the cafe. The cafe does well. They branch out. They have they add a restaurant, you know. And uh, at the end of that period, uh, the the renter walks away with nothing. So even though they've been a constituent contributor to the value of that place, um, granted they haven't taken any risk, you know, I mean, and that's really where I think we can get into this conversation more. You know, we could also have a conference on that, but uh, they didn't take any risk. However, their contribution is not recognized, you know, and so the fundamental concept of PropCoin is definitely not socialism. You know, it's not like... <laughs> 
community asset ownership, you know, it's, it's not anything like that. It's just much more, how can you adjust the scenario so that people have a stake in the community, you know, and I'll give you a, I'll give you an anecdote that I think is, is really interesting here. Uh, we're when you start talking about the blockchain, they're talking about it as Web three or Web four, depending on whose the reference point it is. They're saying Web two, which is the Google, Facebook, Apple version of it. So if Web one was very decentralized, you know, and I don't know when you got on the internet, but I remember getting on the internet and it was very decentralized. You know, you could run a web server in your house. You know, I mean, there was just kind of this this very kind of creative angle to it. You know, you had people writing their own Photoshop plugins and they cost 19 pounds on a shareware site, you know, and there was a very, there was a very kind of distributed feeling, actual uh, function to it, but it was also a feeling. And what I find interesting about that is you didn't get the problems of fake news and all the stuff until you got the centralization. Because in the old, you know, I mean, if you go look at things like, um, you know, Reddit and, you know, some of the, the very early online communities, people felt ownership over them. You know, they, they took on roles and they, they co-created them. I mean, you have sites like Craigslist and Metafilter and, you know, these kind of old guard of the old content industries where there was an honor, there was community, there was a construction and because it, it didn't feel like it belonged to anybody. Uh, and now that you're in, you're in the point where, I mean, Facebook, I think, is going to be very challenged by this uh, because, you know, it's, it's no, it, it, you're getting a very much kind of landlord-tenant feeling to it, which is no, it's your house, I just live in it, so when it breaks, that happens, and then it's like, okay, fine, if it's my house, then I'm going to take all the data, you know, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do whatever I want to kind of maximize the value of my asset, you know, and I think, I think, Part of the reason we now see this thing about fake news and content is because you've lost the creative class, you've lost the curators, you know, you've lost the artists, you've lost the, the kind of maintainers, uh, and now you have consumers and producers, I mean, same as anything else. I mean, extend that to our communities, you know, like when, when a house in Britain uh, was five years of, you know, uh, gross wages, you know, people went and they bought in communities and they took care of them. And they improved them. They made them what they wanted. They had connections to their neighbors and everything. And I think, um, you know, now that you're seeing more and more renters, you're also seeing more and more loneliness. You're seeing more and more uh, or less and less rather public space. You know, you're seeing all of these things of basically people opting out. You know, while I love a platform like SpaceHive, um, you know, which is all about kind of crowdfunding civic improvement, I think, you know, how, how have you gotten so far that, Communities don't do that themselves. And, you know, it's because I see now you have communities of renters. And so the very kind of one step forward thing of PropCoin is how do we give ownership, you know, fractionally back to people uh, in the community? You know, I mean, beyond the idea of a single asset, and this comes into what I believe is the big innovation. I think it's where the blockchain is going to come in. And I think really kind of the probably the next step in our conversation. But Millennials don't want to own, you know, I mean, they want to move around. They won't, they don't want to be constrained, you know? And so you have this thing where, you know, they're about experiences. Uh, I think what's amazing about social media, I think what really fractured here was you used to not know what people did. I remember this example from a place I work where, uh, there was a guy and he was very quiet and, you know, he, he only seemed to have kind of two or three sets of clothes and, you know, he brought his lunch every day and people that assumed that, you know, he just wasn't doing that well, 
you know, and he didn't fit the mold of kind of the corporate person really trying to rise up, you know, and uh, everybody in the office just kind of saw him as the guy who, who just wasn't really making it, you know, until we got uh, Facebook and, you know, everybody kind of starts befriending each other and they see that for two weeks a year, he goes back, uh, I believe it was Italy and lived like an absolute king. <laughs> House on the lake, water skiing, you know, dinner parties, fantastic things, you know, and, and the rest of the time, like material accumulation just wasn't interesting. You know, he took the bus and he did all the things to save money. And then those two weeks a year, he went and lived like an absolute champion. You know, and I think part of what Facebook has done for people, you know, positively or negatively, but it showed you that actually the consumption economy, you know, like fashion is said to be diminishing because it's like actually the multiplication of stuff. I mean, yes, there is very important signaling to it. You know, I used to be in the luxury industry. I could tell you all about that. But more and more you're seeing, you know, it's like I, I, I don't want to maximize the amount of stuff I have. I want to maximize, you know, the amount of world I see or the amount of techno parties I go to or the amount of beaches I see or the amount of Barry's classes I can go to, you know, or the amount of restaurants that, you know, there's a whole different kind of experience. And so, you know, I think millennials, when you look at kind of their, their 20s now, it's becoming a very experimental time. You know, it's they don't want to attach themselves to a lifestyle. They don't want to buy a house, you know, they don't want to kind of save money and like, you know. Well, the perception of the lifestyle that you have to lead to create the value in which you perceive to be, to have that value. I mean, a lot, you know, a lot of millennials essentially grew up in the wake of the 2007 sure, sure, sure. financial crisis. People going, hang on, is that what I'm meant to be working towards? Having everything ripped from from beneath me? Yes. Is that what I should be spending my life on? I, uh, let's come back to that because I think that's what's driving part of the, the cryptocurrency aspect of the blockchain. But I think in general, you know, people are living longer. You know, so I think somebody born now uh, has a high probability of living until they're 100, uh, maybe longer, like we don't know. And what's interesting is when, when this has been looked at by the Oxford Institute of Demographics, you know, what they've seen is part of the reason people are getting married later and spending more time in school is if you, if you uncompress somebody's previous lifestyle, you know, so if you say you're going to live 50 to 60 years, it's like, okay, so you spend 10 years as a kid, you spend 10 years, you know, getting trained, you get married at 20, you have kids at 30, you work for 25 years. But if you double the lifespan, it's like, okay, well now you're gonna spend kind of 20 years as a kid and you're gonna spend 10 years in education, you're gonna start your family between 30 and 40, and then you're gonna work for 40 years. You know, And so you have this thing where the entire system has been set up one way, but actually uh, there's a huge experimental phase people wanna go through now, and, and now you have to make this choice. And this goes back to the conversation about you know, if you're not buying, you're renting and you may want to rent for your lifestyle. You know, you don't care. You want to live around your friends. I mean, this is driving, you know, the micro home agenda, which I don't particularly agree with. I think it's, it's, it's a rather inelegant hack to it. You know, I don't find it to be particularly creative. I'll be interested to see if it has a lifespan beyond, you know, kind of being a, a an Airbnb outgrowth. But you know, how do you, how can you basically invest in real estate without buying a house, you know, uh, as an expat, I see this problem because there, you can't invest in somewhere where you're, it's very hard to invest in somewhere where you're not, you know? And when you look at the traditional buying stack now, 
Uh, you know, a part of the inspiration for PropCoin came from a good friend of mine who, uh, Google employee, saving up for a house. When you look at the drag of trying to save for house in London, you know, so it's like in that case, what you start to do is you start to minimize the amount you want to spend on rent to maximize the amount you want to invest. And it's like, then where do you put it? You put it in the FTSE, you get a certain return out of it, and, and you have this tension. So it's like you have your savings pot, you know, which, which is going to pay one kind of financial service and fee structure. And then you have your rental pot, and it's like, okay, I'm going to try and, you know, where I end up on that scale. It's like I have to choose between how much do I want to save to buy a place and how much do I want to spend on lifestyle. And I, I just find it to be like... Quite a quite a part of my language, but shit bit because it's like, well, I live in London because I want to have an experience because I want to have life, and I mean, we live here because it's creative and interesting. Yeah. Uh, but then I have to to modulate that by what do I want to buy, when do I want to buy, where do I want to buy, and all these lifestyle factors. And so, essentially, the, the fundamental thing we're trying to do with PropCoin is: can you buy equity in a fund in a real estate market on a monthly basis? You know, so rather than pay rent. Can we achieve a situation where each month you're buying a small slice of equity uh, in that property market? Now, my goal is not to return a massive amount of capital to you. What my goal is, is my goal is to make you a participant in the system. It's fairness. Uh, it's not. It's, it's fairness through equity because it's, it's, it's fairness in that you've, you've put something in and it's fair. Yeah. You get a pro, you know a proportional representation yes. of that in return in the form of equity. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's, I, <laughs> I think that's duly fair. I think if you start asking more and more questions, I think uh, through people, and ask, I think fairness is a big, big topic that needs to be understood more. It's not about pure equity inequality. Mm. It's about fairness. What's what's right? What you put in, you should feel that you. You are, you know, you're perceiving that you are getting more from from your environment. You are relating to it more. It's mm. fair that you get that mm. return. Well, I mean, you you can imagine a scenario where, let's say, you had a, a micro equity program such as this one. Uh, you would see very different neighborhoods. You know, uh, you would the concept of ownership and the concept of community. You know, it's um, when you look at like Rachel Botsman's work on uh, the sharing economy and trust, right. you know, what do you own with eBay or Airbnb or Uber or whatever? Like you own something, you own that profile, which says you are a good community member. You know, reputation matters. Like mm. even if the stakes are small, even if they're illusionary, uh, you know, or even if they're they're self-created. I mean, uh, you know, I, I hope we can end the conversation and discussion about the physical experience versus the psychological experience of a city. But you know, if you think about a bipolar uh, business model where I, I rent, and you know, anybody who's rented a house, rented a car, rented anything, you don't treat it like you own it. You know, because you are expressly paying not to own it. You know, you're saying, well, I'll just do whatever I want with it. You know, and uh, I think that's fine in a lot of ways. And I think the, the, you know, you look at things like Drive Now or Zipcar, you know, and I think, I think those are fascinating programs. Uh, and I think, you know, people do take care of them. They are part of the community. But you have these, these, you have these things which are strict economic exchanges, you know, like things like eBay and things like uh, Drive Now, where it's like I put in money, I get a utility, and then I carry on. And then you have things which matter a lot more that are ecosystems, you know, like cities, like neighborhoods, like uh, Airbnb. You know, you have a tremendous uh, 
you can have a tremendously rich life if you can go to a place, you know, and, and you can pay 30 pounds. Like, yes, you're sharing somebody's house. But when you're, if you couldn't afford to travel before, you know, uh, like this is giving you a, a very rich experience, a very connected experience. And, and it's an ecosystem. And I think in those cases, I think ownership matters a lot more. And when, especially if you scale that up to the environments in which we're in, you know, where it's like, imagine this, if everybody in San Francisco uh, got a vote whether or not they owned a rented property, you would have a very different city. You know, uh, I don't know if that should be the case because, you know, people who rent have no stakes. So it's like, how can we get people stakes in the environment so that they're actually meaningful attached I mean, I, thought, I saw this, uh, one statistic that makes PropCoin work for some reasons um, is the average rental tenancy in Britain now is somewhere between 15 and 21 months. And it's like a side effect, I think, from having your online life. You know, like your online life is your, is your house. It's where you collect everything. It doesn't matter where you live. You know, it's like you just, just your friends Google mapping to a, to a different place. You know, remember the Facebook wall? You know, yeah. I, I don't know about you, but, you know, and I'm sure many people uh, listening would empathize with often when you went round to a friend's house, you know, when you were 14, 15, maybe, you, you know, they were new friends. Often people had loads of pictures on their walls. Yes. They'd have their gig tickets. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, you know, it's stuck on there yeah, yeah. alongside like an award that they won and all of a sudden that just became digital and almost like the home became a far quieter place visually well what I, what, I, what I find striking is you know when you Airbnb is said to be unique in the fact it has the world's largest interior design library you know which is fascinating for a lot of reasons but I see that you know when you go and you look at a lot of the photos on there they're not personalized spaces you know, because it feels like the spaces that are being personalized are the online space. And now a house is just a structure, you know, and uh, so people are moving around more frequently. And uh, I think, you know, I think this is this is part of the problem that we're seeing around inequality and around, um, you know, I, I would say not only not only economic poverty, but also psychological poverty, educational poverty, because there's no say in the communities because people don't own them. And ownership keeps concentrating and concentrating and concentrating. Now, to the point, you know, and I'll just finish this, this kind of uh, point on this, which is, I'm not, you know, you talk about fairness. I, I like fairness. I think fairness is good. Uh, but I think what you have is you have technology which enables you to do it without uh, negatively affecting the existing owners, right? I mean, before... Yes, you can go redistribute these things, but it's, it, it's high friction and you, it's very hard to create win-win situations. You know, like before it was like, well, if I want to give you ownership, then if I want to give you ownership, I have to take it away from somebody else. Whereas now we're talking about, you know, with technology, we can change value systems, we can recognize new value, we can create new kind of economic inputs and outputs. And so now we're saying, well, we can each have a different piece of it. You know, and as we can create more value from, from a singular object, uh, we, we, we can each own that in a different way, you know? I mean, uh, you sort of look at, back to the iPhone example, you have the same kind of internet lines which used to carry voice, but now they can carry data. It's like, I haven't, you know, I haven't impoverished the people making phone calls by putting data over the top. I've actually increased the carrying capacity, you know, of the network. And I think, you know, we're looking at that same kind of thing here. It's like, 
In terms of fairness, like, yes, but I think what innovation allows us to do is it allows us to create more value and then redistribute the additional amount of value. So I don't want to impoverish the people who have worked all their lives. You know, they've contributed to an economic oh, no. structure. No, of course. No, no, no. You, you, can't, you can't create... Well, I think it's incorrect to create your own wealth by removing the wealth of another. And that doesn't mean that everything, you know, that it's socialism. I think it's, you know, I think there's the argument of, you know, almost the freedom of speech is, you know, how much, mm. how much can you negatively use your free freedom of speech to bring down someone else? And I think, you know, I don't want to get into too much mm. of that. I think that's for a completely other podcast series or conversation <laughs> to talk about but it's the level of exploitation it's the level of do i win over you or do i win with you right and that doesn't mean that there are two losers there are just different levels of winners and i think that's you know i'd see that's the question of fairness mm. so i'm gonna I'm going to try and bring our conversation to a close because naturally the way that we've had our conversation, we can go on for a few hours, but I wanted to um, give you just a couple sort of quick fire yeah, questions. Yeah, yeah. So um, you've spent a lot of time in, in the intersection between technology and real estate. Where are we? Mess. We're near a solution. What's, you know, is there, if there one problem you're saying, good Lord, this is crazy. Um, yeah, in in a sentence, do you think you can, uh, from your from your humble opinion, answer that? I think we're at the very beginning. Okay. I think that um, uh, look at Bulb. Uh, who sorry? Bulb, the utilities company. Okay. Uh, step change. You know, I think what you're going to see is there is such a resistance in the industry to change that what's going to happen is they're necessarily creating disruptors, you know, because the, 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 the cost, you know, the, the risk you have to take to get some of these solutions to scale is getting bigger and bigger. But as people figure out how to do them, they're going to attract more and more capital, uh, and so I think you're going, to, you're going to see leaps. They may not come from the obvious places, but I, you know, I think we are at the very beginning. Cool. Um, you touched on it earlier, but the idea, does blockchain support, because um, something I think we talked off air, in, it's very hard to kind of aggregate all the different perhaps blockchain ledgers together because there isn't really a centralized system really mm. set up. There kind of are different ones. Does that make vertical integration of supply chains mm. such as construction companies linking better with a mm. lighting company linking better with a land value appropriation you know how do you see vertical integration working with blockchain is is it something that we're looking into in the short term or is this is hang on there's a whole lot of other protocols and ledgers that need to be even thought about before we could start truly looking at economic models in in an ecosystem point of view on blockchain technologies i'm going to give you a, a long short answer to that one uh <laughs> for this i think when you look at the dot-com bust right one of the big things about the dot-com bust was a company called quest went and they bought all the rights around the u.s to train tracks and they went and they laid fiber optic cable next to them and they laid a ton of fiber optic cable the market blew up and they went bankrupt uh 
And so you, you, you had all this fiber optic cable sitting there. And part of what propelled the next version of the web was bandwidth was so cheap because it was essentially free. Right? Because there wasn't a company sitting on top of it trying to make money because that company was dead. Uh, and so you had this phenomenal capacity and it was like, what do you want to throw down that pipe? You know, and so like bandwidth, I mean, it, it just killed bandwidth costs. With the blockchain, I think what you have to remember is the first use case of cryptocurrency was the Silk Road and Bitcoin. You know, it was a, a anonymous gateway for drugs by decentralized currency, you know, and that was, that was literally the first use case. You know, that was, that was the, the thing that gave it all life. It was, you know, and, and I, I don't, I, I hope somebody will go and figure out if the Silk Road has contributed to massive changes in soft drug policy around the Western world, because I have a feeling that it may have done. The second use case for Bitcoin was as a gateway to other coins, you know, so once you have Bitcoin, you get all these other things and people, you know, they're just kind of like trading them, you know, and they want to see what was possible, you know, what, what could you do with it? Uh, you know, I mean, the, the dark web and all that stuff was interesting, you know, and I mean, yes, there was the hacker kind of black culture of it, but you know, you had the second thing, the second life, which was, okay, you buy a Bitcoin, you can buy these other coins. It's like, what do they do? Well, I don't really know, but as those coins proliferated, you got more exchanges, you know, so you, you went from having no exchanges or having very kind of weird interactions to exchange them now to all these exchanges. And then, you know, people always ask about the price rise and fall. And it's like, well, now you have a situation of you have all these fiat to crypto gateways around the world, you know, and this is new within the last three years. So you have things that do full KYC and you can take cash, you know, whatever it is, euro, pound, dollar, you know, yuan, South Korean won, whatever. And you can, you can traverse the space between fiat virtual currency in a mostly legal way so far, you know, I mean, they're doing their best. So then the question is much like the dark fiber, you know, it's like, what do you want to do with that? And so when you, when you're talking about vertically integrating stacks and like, can you put all these things together? I actually don't think that's a blockchain concern. That's a, that's APIs, you know, that's data marketplaces, uh, which are coming. I mean, the real question about this is what do you do when you have Something that can go from fiat to a token and anybody can make a token, you know, so now anybody can make an economic tag of a certain quantity and you can go do things with that uh, and you can take your money in and out. It's real time price. It's a 24 hour exchange. You know, it's like I don't think vertical integration is, is where you are yet. I think there'll be some very interesting uses for the blockchain. But I think the more important thing to look at is like what is going to happen with all this dark fiber that's being laid? Interesting. All right. Um, most interesting piece of cities-based tech you want to see mature. That could just be a very nascent um, piece at the moment. Other people who've come on um, have said blockchains. Obviously, you can't pick that. Um, in, in, in cities, with regards to all the tech that's going around, what do you want to really see mature at the moment? Um... I'm going to say IoT data. You know, there's a, there's a thing where there's a Chrome extension where you can download your Uber history, uh, all of it, and look at Uber and your Uber use. And what I find amazing about that is it has your start and your stop time, uh, and it has your patterns. And so you can see your own patterns in this data. But you can get that on your iPhone as well. 
No, but I mean, this you can, you can extract it. Yeah. Then you can take a price and you can start getting to something of saying like, what am I willing to pay for something at different times of day? You know, and in what season, you know? So I was mapping mine this weekend. It was like, I take more Ubers in some parts of the year than others on some days of the week more than others. You know, and I think like as you go, you know, it's like I, I can figure out what makes me happy. You know, plug it into my Apple Watch and see when do I exercise, where do I go. You know, I think this this IoT data stack that we're going to generate, I think is going to be fascinating and allow us to uh, really live a lot better. Cool. And last but not least, uh, you got a good book about cities, maybe about economies that you'd like to recommend. Uh, so I got two. Cool. The first one is, if you know it, Invisible Cities by Calvino. Uh, Not personally. Which is, um, you know, it's really about the psychological experience of a place versus the physical. Sounds like I should read it. Uh, the second one is The Silk Roads by Peter Frankopan, which is going around, which is a phenomenal economic history. But when it comes to cities... I think what's really interesting is cities are not new. You know, this goes back four or 5,000 years. Uh, and it's a testament to both the power of cities, to what happens when they get it wrong, you know, like in the Roman Empire and you know, some of the various things. But um, what I really like best about it is when you look at it, it looks like the Silk Road uh, was like the internet. It's an interconnected fabric where cities are nodes. Uh, and I can't think of a, a better representation for what we're looking at today. Awesome. Nick, thanks very much for coming on the Cities podcast. Thank you. So a massive thanks to Nick for his time. If you missed any of his contact details, the best place to get hold of him is via his Twitter handle, which is at BetterCity. What I really liked about PropCon in particular is how it can help to democratize equity gains that are made through the increase in the capital value of real estate. So thanks again for listening. We're on iTunes. So if you didn't find us there, please do head over next time. Leave us a review, hopefully a positive one at that. If you want to keep in touch with what The Centric Lab are up to, then our website is quite simply thecentriclab.com. If you want to ask more about this podcast, any questions, then email us at podcast at thecentriclab.com. And obviously, we are on social media, mostly via Twitter, which is at thecentriclab. So my name's Josh. Thank you very much for your time. I'll speak to you soon.